Jesus told a, a parable in Matthew, and parables are just short, sticky stories that kind of stick with you and unpack truths. And he tells a story of a sower who is just throwing out seed. And as he tells the parable, it sounds like the, the sower is just a bit haphazard because he's just throwing uh, the seed to, to grow the harvest everywhere. And so he's throwing it on rocky ground. He's uh, throwing it uh, in the thorns. He's throwing it on the path. He's throwing it in the soil. just throwing it everywhere. And he tells, Jesus tells this parable about these four different soils and what happens with each of uh, uh, the soil and the seed that hits that different kinds of soil. And then he makes his point. And this is what he says in Matthew 13 to his disciples to explain the parable. He said, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path. I'm sorry, verse 8. That's where I'm supposed to be. Verse 8, there it is. So listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom, let me translate that real quick, the gospel, the message, the good news of Jesus. So when anyone hears that and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path, just like the birds pick up the seed that are just falling on the path. So the evil one snatches it out of this person. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is one who hears the word, and immediately receives it with joy. It's like a flash in a pan of like, yes, I'm so excited about Jesus. This is everything. It connects all the dots. This is perfect. I'm going to go for it. All this joy. But he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution because of the world, immediately he falls away because of the word. He immediately falls away. So you can think about this as, you know, the weeds in your grass that are just short roots and it's easy to pull out. That's what it's like. Like the first sign of distress or persecution, you, you receive the gospel message with joy and then there's some like people saying, do you really believe Jesus? Do you think Jesus is true? Do you think Christianity is good? And you're like, uh, no, I don't. Not anymore, right? Short root, short lived, done. Verse 22, now the one sown among the thorns, this, this seems to have a longer shelf life. The one sown among the thorns. This is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So this is the one who's here the gospel message has uh, been like, okay, I'm, I'm in this, I'm, I'm committed to this, but then the cost of discipleship really hits them really committing to like, I got to follow Jesus and everything. I got to endure suffering. Oh, but look how the bright, the lights of the world, this idolatrous age are. I'd, I'd rather go after that. And so it doesn't stick. The cares of the world, the riches of the world, the lure of the world, or we, we, what we saw previously in the last, uh, in this chapter, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, those things choke out the word in us and doesn't persevere. But he says, the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields. Some 100, some 60, some 30 times what was sown. So you may have heard the gospel. If you've been at our church for a little bit, I pray that you've heard the gospel clearly. But it could be that it's been snatched away from you. 
or the cost of discipleship is too much and you fall away, or the cares and wealth of this world are choking out the gospel in your heart. But others of you, he clearly says, have believed the gospel and have borne fruit. Have borne fruit. And you will endure to the end. So I, I say this to, to try to put this imagery in front of you before we get to 1 John 2, so, so you can kind of think through 1 John 2 in this lens. But I also want to say this. We shouldn't be surprised when folks who profess allegiance to the gospel end up walking away from it because of the evil one, because the message didn't take root, or because the world became more beautiful to them than Jesus. It's going to happen. People will press, profess allegiance to Jesus. Think about 70 years ago when it was uh, uh, beneficial to you as a businessman to be a part of a church uh, so that you could create connections. And everyone thought, yeah, that's a pretty good thing. You're, you're an outstanding kind of good moral citizen. You go to church, you, you work hard. But you know what? It, it's losing that value in our culture. Being a part of a church, saying you, you go to, has lost its value on our society or not. And so now it's like, you really, that's what you do? That's where you go? Where you could easily be the one who uh, had the no root in the past and stay around the church for 50 years and be seen as like, oh, I think that guy's a Christian. I think that woman loves Jesus. And not till later get found out, no, there's no root there. They haven't been bearing fruit. Now that, that, that can get really exposed now because the cost of discipleship is not delayed. You feel it now. If you're going to commit to Jesus, there's going to be pressure. There's going to be some people against you. There's going to be people who will be like, you bigot. You really believe that thing still? Wait, do you think Thor is alive right now too? Like, how do you watch the Marvel movies? Like, are you expecting that Ragnarok is about to happen? Like, what is going on? This is how fantastical your mind is? It made happen. But I want you to see in 1 John 2, coming off what he said last week, he's continuing the same pace. And so if you have your Bible, I want you to see it with me. 1 John 2, verse 24. 1 John 2, verse 24. What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. Not fall away, not get choked out, but remain in you. We, we finished last week with the wonderful truth of God's persevering faithfulness to us, that he's going to hold on to us. No one is going to snatch us out of the Father's hand, not even ourselves. So hold on to him. He's going to hold on to you, so hold on to him. And so it continues here. The gospel is to remain in you. He keeps going. If what you heard from the beginning remains in you, this conditional clause, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. So if the gospel, the good news, the, the, the uh, uh, word sown in the, the four soils from the parable of Jesus, if that remains in you, you will remain in the Son and the Father. So he's making this plea with us again. 
hold on to the gospel. He, he wrote last week and said, you're, I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth. I'm writing to you because you know the truth. I'm saying cling to the truth. Keep holding on to the truth. The gospel is the good news of rescue, the good news of a righteous king setting up his kingdom. So this means, just, just with the four soils, that genuine faith perseveres to the end. And a faith that, that fizzles was faulty to begin with. And so I, I want to try to simultaneously make those who are comfortable a little bit uncomfortable. Or maybe you are a bit arrogant or uh, a bit self-righteous or uh, uh, deceived in that you've put all your stock in, in the love of God for you, but you're actually not a Christian. You've just been putting your name out there. It's like, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I grew up this way. I'm still this way. I tell people this. I've been around the church for a long time. I'm a Christian. And I think this passage, John is doing, he is simultaneously messing with people there of like, are you really a Christian? Is your life bearing any fruit? Are you still holding on to the gospel? And then others that, that maybe have a, uh, a gentle conscience, the ones that are like always wrestling with, does Jesus love me? How am I doing now? Where am I at? That kind of young, soft conscience that, that is worried about your security worried about where you stand with God, and you know what John's going to do there? He's going to assure you, you are loved, you're adopted, you will be glorified. And so it, it's, it's kind of hard to do both, but I'll just try to take John's uh, 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 point, his pointers to try to do it, but that's what's happening here. Stirring up the comfortable and, and then comforting <laughs> the uncomfortable the insecure, the uncertain. Now, for that very reason, I want to ask you this question for those little insecure. What has God promised to us? What do you say right there in verse 25? You can clap for pignets. I also would love for you to respond to my question. This isn't rhetorical. What does God promise us? Eternal life. And this is the God who's never broken a promise and can't break a promise. You have been promised by the covenant keeping faithful father you have eternal life but know this other sowers will come along to deceive you just like i said last week god creates and sends out jesus to spread the word to spread the gospel to to begin to inaugurate his kingdom and what does satan do he counterfeits and so he comes along and he sends out a message as well and he sends out sowers to to deceive you that's what he says in verse 26. He really exposes his motivation. I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, 
the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you imperative. Remain in him. Command, remain in him. Continuous verb that commands you to ongoingly remain in him. And what you feel here from John and his tone and his care for these people and how he's called them little children so many times, even up to this point, you feel his concern for God's sheep. This is how I feel for us. Like he's pained to just imagine these people walking away from Jesus. Like there's pain in him just imagining it before it even happens. That's why he's writing them, so they won't be deceived. Why? Because deception leads to defection. That's why. I don't want you to be deceived. If you are deceived about who Jesus is, then you will deny him and walk away from him. But here's the honest truth. These false teachers are trash, to use my lingo. They're trash. False teachers are trash. Not worthy of you podcasting them or downloading them or reading them or hearing from or submitting to them. They're trash. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. You don't need them. They're like, well, then why are you teaching us right now? Okay, calm down. Do you want me to do a whole biblical theology of teaching right now? I don't have the time for it. You get it. If you don't, you know, I was just going to say read the Bible. That, that's not very kind. Uh, I just don't have time. I'm going to keep going. What I'm trying to get is what John's getting. He's saying, don't listen to him. Okay. And this is why. Do you remember remember who John is? John is the beloved disciple of Jesus who walked with Jesus from the beginning to the resurrection, has walked with Jesus since Jesus' resurrection into his 80s. This is what John heard Jesus say in John 14. Jesus said, I was spoken these things to you, his disciples, while I remain with you. Do you hear the remain again? But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, because so, he's not going to, he's, he's going to leave and he's going to go back to the Father and be at the right hand of the Father. I'm not going to remain. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Listen to your teacher, your advisor. One reason God gave us the Holy Spirit is to lead us into all truth, to guide us. He has the capacity and power to keep Jesus crystal clear. Do you know what I'm saying? It is very easy for Jesus, his fame, his reputation, his person, his work to be diminished and muddled in our minds and our hearts, but the Holy Spirit present work in you is to keep Jesus crystal 
clear in your life. He excites us to glorify Jesus. The Holy Spirit is working in you. Anytime that you've been excited for Jesus, whenever you've glorified Jesus, whenever you've celebrated the goodness of Jesus, not only have you seen his goodness, but you've also celebrated, that's a work of the Spirit. That's what he's doing in you. You don't need these false teachers. They're trash. You have the Holy Spirit. I don't want us to undervalue this spectacular gift given to us. The Spirit of God lives in you. And there's so many times when I say things to myself and to you that I want you to just pull it into your heart and not be like, yeah, I get it. You've told me that before. I want you to take this in and feel this. The Spirit of God lives in you. He's been gifted to you. He guarantees your eternal joy and life. You have been appointed to receive eternal life by being anointed with the Holy Spirit. So why? Why defect from being given Jesus' very life? Why defect from such good news? So John is saying, don't be deceived. Remain in Jesus. That's what he goes on to say in verse 28. So now, little children, again, imperative, command, present, ongoing action. Remain in Jesus so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. The word remain can also be translated abide. And like I'm saying, it's a president present imperative. It's a word of command, calls for action, consistent action, ongoing action. So if I paraphrase this way, say, remain in union and communion with the Godhead. Soak in the Savior and the gospel message that you've heard from the beginning. Commune with the Father through his word and prayer. Climb up into his lap and enjoy being with him. Remain with him. Abide in him. Commune with him. Let what, what, what Paul says in Colossians, let the word of Christ, the gospel message of Christ, dwell in you richly. That we delight in the Trinity. This means to remain. That we re remain faithful to the gospel, faithful to the good news of Jesus. And we'll let Jesus unpack that phrase, remain in him, for us instead of me trying to. And this is what he said, John 15. Jesus told his disciples, and thereby extension to us, so hear this. Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. If you don't remain in Jesus, we, we've seen what that looks like. There's no son and no father. 
But if you don't remain in Jesus, you also see here that you're just a useless, dead branch on the ground producing no fruit. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them in the fire, they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So I, I want to add another word to the mix, and I would say add to remain to your, your maybe visual understanding of remain is rooted, being rooted in Jesus. And that's good imagery because Jesus connects remaining with bearing fruit. So, so track with me. When you're rooted in Jesus, you remain in him, so you'll bear fruit like him. You'll love like him. You'll live like him. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. He says in Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Peter says, for you're called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. John Stott says, we cannot claim to abide in him unless we are like him. That's why those four soils is telling. Because the seed that has fell among the soil, the good soil, and has borne good fruit, bears much fruit. And Stott is saying, yeah, to remain in Jesus, to be rooted in Jesus, means you will bear fruit. But you can't be professing. You can't be claiming, my allegiance is to Jesus if your life doesn't look like it. In verse 29, you know what he says? Righteousness begets righteousness. Righteousness births righteousness. So you're a son of a righteous father, then you will be righteous. Or to say it in the uh, uh, opposite negative way, if you live like the devil, you can't keep saying, my allegiance is to Christ. If you live like the devil, you're of the devil. No be Devil. That's what you're of. He put this very starkly here. The new birth precedes new behavior. Being adopted by a father precedes being a loving child. Children of God will grow to look like God their father. The righteous Savior produces righteous saints. Will you be perfect? Of course not. You will sin. Go back to 1 John 1. You can't say you won't sin. You can't deceive yourselves. There's no sin in you. Until you die, there's sin in you. You will fight. But, but, if you're rooted in Jesus, you will continue to bear fruit like Jesus. And if I take that and think back to John and these deceivers, these false teachers, I just want to contrast the two because because not only is false teaching wrong, not only does it diminish the work and person of Christ, not only uh, does it try to defame the glorious one, it also produces tightening, selfish followers. 
Do you know what the gospel produces? Opening, blooming disciples that are loved lovers. If I could rename this series right now, I would call it Loved Lovers because that's what you see in John. You're loved by the Father and then you're called to, and also you can because you're loved, love others to extend the love, to uh, push out, to send out, radiate the love that you receive from the Father. Now you love others. And if you don't love, if you don't bear fruit, you should be questioning what kind of soil was I? Was I? Where am I actually at? I profess Jesus, but do I actually follow Jesus? gospel produces opening, blooming, thriving, vibrant lovers. And then John adds, Jesus is coming again. <laughs> he will appear on this again, on this earth again, officially in public display as King of kings and Lord of lords. So when he appears, he then asks, if this is a reality, this is a matter of fact, he will appear. When he appears, will you have boldness or will you shrink back from him? Will you run toward him as a child runs to a loving father or will you draw back and attempt to hide from his glorious royal arrival? I want you to reflect on that. Think about that. If Jesus came back, I feel a little bit like Joe Dirt's mom right now. But if, if Jesus came back right now, that was for like seven of you, and I'm glad. Thank you. And all of you also have mullets, so that worked out perfect. But if Jesus is coming back and he's going to see you and, and, and how are you going to be? How are you going to recall? How are you going to react when he comes again? If you'll reflect on that right now, that is a wonderful diagnosis of your spiritual health. If Jesus came back right now and your thought would, I'd probably run away. I'd be ashamed. I'd want to shrink back from him. I'd try to hide a bunch of stuff. Like you should examine your spiritual life. Now, in this text, I think there's space here to understand that there will be Christians that might be ashamed. If you go to the Bema seat in 1 Corinthians, this could also mean non-Christians that will just be, say they profess in Jesus, but they don't know him. But whatever the case is, I know this. This much I do know. Jesus wants you to have the confidence of a child jumping into the arms of a loving daddy. He doesn't want you running to a closet or a cave hiding in shame. He, he wants you to be coming at him like that little three-year-old that, that's just so excited to see you and just puts their hands up in the air and runs towards you asking or demanding a hug. Hug me, daddy. Get me. Pick me up. Hold me. And think about it. Just think about the flow of what I've said, what John has said. The gospel remains in you. 
the Holy Spirit remains in you. Eternal life is promised you. So remain in Jesus. Stay. Hold on. Cling to Jesus so that when he comes back, you know what he can do? He can celebrate your passionate worship, your life of passionate worship, and your life of sacrificial love. I think about when I send my boys all, uh, out, uh, let's say two of them, out to do the recycling. So they're supposed to take the recycling out of the house, put it in the blue bins that are beside the house, and then on trash eve, they're supposed to take the recycling bins out to the curb, right? Because in my family, uh, we forget things in the morning, and you just hear the sound of the dumpster driving by, and you're like, too late. Just... <laughs> like running out in my underwear and a shirt going, can I throw this at you? Can you reverse 10 feet, pick this up? So, so Tuesday evening, they sent out, but now they're getting older, so I just tell them, go do it. Put the recycling out in the blue bins, take the blue bins to the curb, right? And then I'm fiddling around with stuff. I'm in the garage, and I come around the corner. And when I turn that corner and I see two of my oldest boys diligently working and not hurting each other, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, Great job, guys. I'm so proud of you. That's a little bit of what Jesus is talking about. When he comes back, he wants to see you loving his people, being on mission with the gospel, doing what he's called you, not, not playing around, not being distracted, not doing something else, but actually doing what he's called you so he can be like, great job, guys. I'm so proud of you. That's what we're talking about here. Remain in Jesus. He is your greatest treasure. Or to say it a different way, just as a reminder, the greatest blessing of the gospel is not forgiveness, is not new creation, it is not a family like this. The greatest treasure of the gospel is Jesus. He's not one way to heaven among others. He's not one more Mere topic among others, Christian life and theology must begin with and end with Jesus Christ, our Savior and our goal. John Calvin put it eloquently this way and verbosely, but we're going to read it. We see that our whole salvation, all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. Let me pause there. Okay. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity in his conception, if gentleness, it appears in his birth. For by his birth, he was made like us in all respects that we might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of the curse, in his cross. If satisfaction, in his sacrifice. If purification, in his blood. If reconciliation, in his descent into hell. Do you see the point he's making? Every gift that we celebrate, that we enjoy from Jesus, is all directly tied to Jesus. You get it as a blessing of the gospel, not because he throws some stuff at you from a distance, but because you're united to him. If newness of life, 
in his resurrection, if you're seeking immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment and the power given to him to judge. In short, thank you, John, since the rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. I read that to you because there is that temptation, and the temptation to defect and walk away from Jesus doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from something else saying, no, I can give you a better life. No, this is the better way to think about this. No, this is actually should, how you should live and parent and, and do the... John Calvin is saying, Christ is at the center of everything. Don't grab onto forgiveness or love or mercy or fullness of life anywhere else. Only in Jesus. Remain in Jesus. Don't be deceived. Don't defect. Cling to Jesus. And then we turn, John turns, back to the indicative of who we are in Christ. 1 John 3, it's 1054, and I'm about to try to address one of my favorite verses of the Bible. So, adjust your lunch plans. Verse 1, see what... <laughs> Lubies can wait. See what great... All right, let's get back on task. Like I said, it's my favorite verse. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children and we are, I think, the CSB translators for putting the exclamation point there. There's not punctuation in the original text. There's an exclamation there, and rightly so. And we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when we, he appears, we will be like him because we will see him, Jesus, as he is. And every person who has this hope in Jesus purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Number one, you are loved. You're loved. So you got to look at that first verse, that first, that first note word. See, this isn't here. This isn't acknowledge. This isn't read this. This is look. This is in your five senses. So this means experience the love that the Father has given to you. Experience, see, look, behold, feel his affection for you. That's what John is telling you. You're getting deceived by other people. You think he's going to double down on doctrine, but what he doubles down on is the Father loves you. Don't run away from him. 
I can convince you of intellectual things and apologetics to try to uh, uh, help you to doubt your doubts about Christianity, but what's going to change your heart is you seeing, experiencing, receiving, taking in the love that the Father has for you. You will not walk away or fall away as you behold the love of the Father for you in Christ. So look. That's what he's telling us. Again, this is an imperative. This is a command. This isn't a suggestion. He's saying, look. Just pointing. Look. Look at the love of the Father for you. And you're like, okay, tell me. Well, what does that mean? How, how, how big is this love? How should I know? How can I see this love? You see this love in the fact that the Father sent the Son in your place to die for your sins, to reconcile you to the Father so that His Son, eternal Son, that He's always showered love on before creation, He's sins to the cross so that you could be sent to glory. That's the love the Father has for you. That he has called you children, and by the mere fact of calling you children, he spoke it into existence just like he spoke the world into existence. You're called God's children by God's love, and so we are. This isn't given a title without the nature underneath it. He's not saying, hey, you're God's child, but nothing has changed eternally. We'll give you the position, but you don't have any of the credentials. He's saying, no, 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 no. I call you children, and you're children because I call you my children. And why? Because of my ferocious, intense, sweet, incessant love for you. That's why. The, the pushback of so many people about the love of God for them is that they don't think they're lovable. The truth is, you're not. I've met you. I don't even like some of you. Just kidding. But Jesus didn't die to make lovely people more lovely. He died to make unlovable people loved. Loved. You're loved because he set his love on you. You're like, well, I got to earn this and perform this. No, Christ has your loved. Well, I got to always stay in his good standings or maybe he'll get mad and he'll kind of become like a cruel dad, kind of like my dad. was. No, Christ perpetually intercedes on your behalf, your promise, eternal life. You're loved. It, it feels like when Jesus appears to Paul and he says, how long are you going to, I'll try to translate, how long are you going to kick against the wall? Paul, are, you can just keep beating your head against the wall. And it's the kind of same thing, like, will you, will you keep kicking the wall? Will you keep beating your head against the wall? Why? Stop pushing a back against the love of God for you. He's clearly revealed to you. He's told you multiple times, stop pushing back and see what kind of love the Father has for you. Behold it, experience it, embrace it. You are loved. John Owen, 
John Owen, which my second son is named after, that's why you book. John Owen argued this. The greatest unkindness you can do to God is to refuse to believe that he loves you. So if there's any of you guys that, that have that conscience of you're worried about not glorifying God, which I hope if you're a Christian you do, if you have also that idea of I don't want to quench the spirit, Owen is arguing that the greatest thing that you do to quench the spirit in your life is that you refuse to believe and receive that the Father loves you. And you're like, well, what about that heinous sin? Yes. But I think Owen's right. I think John Owen's he's saying the greatest unkindness you can do to him. Because doesn't everything else flow from that? Doesn't giving in to all your selfish, animalistic, sinful desires come from not believing and trusting that you're loved? Don't you run to other gods because you don't trust that the true God loves you? Don't you idolize and put people on pedestals because you feel like you have to have their love in your life because you don't believe the Father loves you. And those people that you idolize and then they let you down, you then demonize. Why? Because you don't trust that the Father loves you. And so I agree with Owen, John, Owen. I think it's the greatest unkindness you can do to him. He, he, he said it in his Puritan English this way, you can no way more trouble or burn him. That's a big, that's a big statement. I haven't put everything on it. I haven't like pieced it all out and walked through all the scripture. I just feel this. I can, I can sense what he's saying. I don't know to what degree he's right. What I'm saying is I feel that. The greatest unkindness you can do to God is to refuse to believe that he loves you. So clear out the madness. Clear out the brush. And receive the Father's love for you. You are loved. Number two, you're adopted. God the Father, contrary to popular opinion, is happy and joyful. And God the Father delights to share his love for his son. And so he comes to make himself known as our father. That just in itself reveals how gracious and kind he is. Now, for us in our tribe, we love to talk about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. While that the foundational blessing of our union with Christ, I think adoption may be the highest blessing of all. That, that in justification, because this is where it comes, like, maybe I don't need to pit against each other. I'm not trying to pit them against each other. I'm just saying, in justification, God declares sinners righteous in the court of his legal justice. But in adoption, God takes those justified believers into his household as his children. <laughs> Where you have a new legal relationship with the Father. 
Now, let me tell you a story, humanly speaking, that, that gets a little bit at, I think, the father's vantage point. When we adopted our oldest son at six months, we went to the court, and it's downtown Fort Worth. That family court uh, and that judge just deal with some of the most heartbreaking cases every day. Divorce, custody, that's all they do. And so this older 65-year-old man judge, and like most do, make adoption day one of the biggest days of the year because so much of their work is terrible. They want to rejoice in this good work that they get to be a part of. And so there's, there's stuffed animals everywhere, and there's balloons in the court, and our family and friends are there. And do you know what, what the judge asked us? There's a lot before, but he asked us, raise your hand and, and right hand and confess and make this pledge, this oath. And one of the lines is this, we pledge to Jude that we will be his forever parents, that we will treat and he will operate and he will function just as uh, our uh, biological children that was born to us. He's in our family forever. Nothing can change that legal status. We didn't just bless him from a distance. We brought him into our home. That's what the Father has done to you. He isn't forgiving you and say, all right, keep going. You got a blank slate now. Or, or now I'm going to give you the righteousness of Christ, credit to your report. Good news. He said, yes, and I'm going to bring you into my family, and I'm going to be your loving father forever. You're adopted. You're loved and you are adopted. So can I ask us, can I tell us, plead with us, can we stop running to the world for affirmation and wisdom when it hates our Savior and us? Did you see that in verse 1? The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. And Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. So can we Stop running to the world's system for wisdom and affirmation when it hates our Savior and us. In, in, in any other situations in your life, do you go find counsel from people that hate you and the God that you serve? I can't think of any. But we so often run to the world system and the idolatrous age for like, how should I do this? How should I think about this? How should I operate? How should I function? <laughs> and it hates you and your Savior. Why listen to it? I'm not saying hate people because Jesus said to love those who've made themselves our enemies. But I'm saying let's not base our liturgy of our days, our liturgy of our weeks on the world's system. Let's parent like God has told us to parent. Husbands, let's lay our lives down for our wives, taking the burdens and loading them with affection and affirmation. Do you, do you see that imagery? Why? Why would you do this? Why would you live this way? Is because you know that Jesus is the fountainhead and source of all life and wisdom. Instead of going to the idolatrous age that hates him, you run to him and listen to how he wants you to run your life. And so husbands, you can love your wives and lay your life down for them and pick up the burdens on their shoulders and carry them for them and then load them, not with your burdens, but with affection and affirmation. That's the path of Jesus. That's not the path of this idolatrous age. 
If you're married to a woman who has kids, she's never going to be over-encouraged. So encourage her. Serve her. Keep wooing her. The, the world forms men into misogynistic pigs and timid cowards, but by his presence and by his word, the Spirit forms men into tough warriors and tender lovers. That's who we are, and that's how we're called to live. Beloved children who love. And then lastly, you're loved, you're adopted, you will be glorified. We are still beat down, crunched, tore up by indwelling sin. We still have to face death on a regular basis. We're still broken down by the longevity and the difficulty of relationships and trying to get them persevere and try to cultivate deep friendships because the sin on us. But he's saying one day, you are so loved and you're adopted that you'll be brought to the place where you'll see Jesus as he is and you will be like him because you see him. All sin and death and idolatry and the incessant factory of idols from our own hearts in this idolatrous age will be demolished, eradicated. And you will be glorified when you see him in his glory. And I love that he says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself. And I've told you a summary from 1 John, a summary of sanctification in the Christian life is a growing absence of sin and a growing presence of love. But that's what we're heading for. That's what it looks like to make traction and growth in this life where we're loved lovers. And then when we see Jesus face to face in his glory, he will transform us and eradicate the presence of sin and fill us with life and joy. The how you think about the origins of your life have massive implications for your present. The way you think about your future has massive implications for your presence. He's saying, if you have the hope that Jesus is going to return and you're going to be glorified, that hope in you is purifying yourself now. That's your active part of sanctification in this. And God's viewpoint is that his love for you is going to keep sanctifying. So the love from the Father to you is sanctifying your heart and your life. And then your hope in Jesus is purifying you, sanctifying you. Like this is the path we're on. And so with that thought of like origins and future and how it impacts your present, let me just finish with this. 
from Mike Reeves. He says that we children of God are like seeds in the first fruit and gleefully find ourselves entirely past, present, future, compassed about by Christ. It's a lot of language. He says it this way. Look, past. Having died with Jesus, we can look no further back into our past than him. Christ, not failure, is our history. Can't get amen from that one. No failures in here? Okay, myself and my wife. We'll acknowledge it. I'll speak for her. She's felt a lot. Past, having died with him, we can look further back into our past than him. Christ, not failure, is our history. But, but go to future. The judge of all the earth is our faithful savior. When he appears, we will be with him. We will be like him, and we will be co-heirs with him. So then present... We're united him. We now share his glad life and standing before the Father. Filled with his spirit, we are made ever more like him. Christ is the center of the universe, and he's also the center of your story, past, present, and future. So family, if you're not a Christian, first, this is what he's calling you to, to love, to be loved to know the greatest treasure this world has ever experienced. And that's not money, that's not fame, that's not recognition, that's not notoriety. It's Jesus. And Jesus, the one who's come to give you life, to love you. And his love, he died for you. And then family, I want you to rest in, enjoy, embrace Full on believe you're loved, you're adopted, and you will be glorified. The one who promised that has never broken one up to this point and never will. So, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that you keep your promises, that you're faithful to us, that you'll keep holding on to us. And then, Lord, I pray that with all of this good news to us, that we would remain and root ourselves in the good news of Jesus. And that we will hold on to the end. And if there's anyone in this room that is doubting their salvation, a sense of, I'm really not sure if I have a new heart, if Jesus has rescued me, if he's made me alive, I profess a lot of things, but they're just just something here. Lord, that you would woo them and show them your grace and mercy and your cosmic grace would collide with their hearts and you would open up their eyes to see the Father's love for them. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.